right, well, welcome back, everybody. We are coming back with a new episode. We are with Stephen Moss all the way in this cool, hip office down in the Central West End. I actually feel like I should be recording podcasts for a living in a place like this. But we are here on a cold winter morning, and we have asked him to come in and share a little bit of who he is and what he does and what is his story. So, Stephen, I'm going to allow you to introduce yourself. What do you do? What's your What's your story? Where can we, um, how can we know you a little bit better? Sure thing. My name is Stephen Moss. I grew up in Panama City, Florida. I grew up in a uh, small PCA church uh, down there in Florida, so same denomination as the Kirk. I attended Sanford University in Birmingham, Alabama. After that, worked for RUF for a few years. I was in college ministry at University of Tennessee in Knoxville, uh, and I uh, and RUF also is a campus ministry associated with our denomination. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I moved to St. Louis in 2013 to attend Covenant Seminary, uh, where I got my Master of Divinity. I now work part-time for First Light Ministries here in town and part-time for Revoice, uh, oh. which is uh, more of a national ministry that's just been getting started. But yeah, but my work with First Light centers around people who experience same-sex attraction or experience some kind of conflict with what they their their biological sex and how they experience that how they experience their gender in some way that they experience that conflict so we minister to people who feel like their experience falls outside the majority uh, on those two things try to provide community a safe place for them to ask questions wrestle with what the Bible says with other people who have kind of walked that journey before and many of them who haven't felt safe in churches before kind of offer a space of safety in a Christian environment where they can find some safe community with the goal of having people reintegrate into their churches and find family in their Mm -hmm. churches. Mm -hmm. The First Light is actually a ministry that the Kirk supports, and mm-hmm. we're very excited to bring him on and for his particular role. I actually met Stephen. He put on a conference for youth workers, and it was a lot of fun just to see a lot of people we love all in one room and talking about what is actually a pretty hard topic, and it was entitled Place to Belong, How to Pastorally Care for families that struggle with this or are associated or interact on any level uh, which in in today's reality is everybody. Everybody interacts with this. And um, so he, he kind of uh, keynoted a conference that just brought up uh, the topic and uh, how to pastorally care for that. And how does your position at First Light associate with your desire to put on that conference, a, a place to belong? Maybe you can draw out uh, a little bit more about what that conference was about uh, and how that associates into your your career and what you do for First Light. Right. So First Light's been primarily focused over the past years for like providing community and support groups for people who are actually having that experience of of being same-sex attracted, LGBT, however they identify themselves in their experience. However, um, in the past uh, year or two, we've really been kind of turning a corner towards wanting to uh, focus on helping equip churches um, to be places where this ministry can happen as well. You know, so we always want to be able to provide some kind of ministry for people who, you know, might otherwise fall through the cracks. 
But our goal and our vision is really to see the churches equipped to receive these people. You know, so if we're trying to get bring people back into the church or or back, maybe they've been in the church before, but had had some experience, had some traumatic experience in the church, felt they couldn't belong, like they couldn't uh, be safe there. And we're trying to help bring them back into that environment. But we realize that in order to do that, churches have to be equipped to know how to mm. handle those people well. Mm. You know, it it's, could be one thing to just say, oh, well, you know, you just love people, right? That's just what we do. We know how to love people well. I think we're, we're, we're good at loving people well that we understand uh, or who have experiences that are very similar to our own. Often where that can start going wrong is that when there's people who have experiences we don't understand, and that's not just talking about people who are same-sex attracted, people who are from different countries or cultures than we are, people who have had different traumatic experiences in their past than we have. What we think is loving, what would seem to would be loving to us if, if we were in their shoes, can oftentimes be quite unloving or unwelcoming in how they experience it. It might be intended to be loving, but it's experienced in a way that's hurtful or alienating or isolating. So what we're trying to do is helping uh, help churches kind of understand what does it look like to understand the experience of people who are same-sex attracted, people who experience gender dysphoria, and then be able to adjust how, not what their message is, not what the truth is. Like we're completely like, you know, don't change your doctrine, but what does it look like to, like the apostle Paul, change how you talk about your doctrine in a way that's going to connect with the people that you're trying to minister to. And so, so we put on this place to belong uh, youth pastors conference as a way to kind of help start the conversation, to help get youth pastors thinking through, okay, what does it look like to understand the experience that my students who are same-sex attracted are going through? Mm-hmm. You know, what might be really loving in dealing with most of my students might be incredibly well-intentioned. But these things might actually be received as unloving, received as alienating or isolating for my students who are same-sex attracted, many who might not have even told me that yet, might not have even told me that that's their experience yet. And so what I might be doing is putting down obstacles to them hearing and believing the gospel that I have no idea I'm actually doing. So we're trying to help um, youth pastors understand that experience and then see what it looks like to speak the gospel that truth in a way that those students will actually be able to understand and hear and then hopefully feel safe enough to actually come out and and share that experience with their youth pastor, mm-hmm. with their parents, with their family, uh, with other trusted adults uh, so that they can wrestle with these big questions with adults who care for them, who want what's best for them, who want them to follow Jesus rather than just their friends, with people online, or with uh, other folks in their life who might care about them, but not so much about their faith. Mm. Yeah, that, that is, that's the kicker right there. I think there are a lot of teenagers specifically who are willing to open up uh, to a lot of people, and uh, particularly the internet, uh, and even you know close friends, but those friends uh, may or may not be advocates of the gospel, right. um, and that's that's the the key difference. And what we want to get from from this conversation right here is you yeah. know what what can we do? And you, you talked about you know in some sense our presuppositions, our our understanding of things, our our experience in life. 
gives us presuppositions of you know how the world should be and function. Mm-hmm. But then there's a, another perspective that we, if we are you know, not same sex attracted, we don't understand because we only have this one lens of which we've seen the world mm-hmm. um, and relationship. Mm-hmm. And you're saying the same sex attracted experience is very different. And so you're trying to create a little bit of empathy, you know, experiencing just so you can help process and minister to and love all experiences exactly so what what is like a tangible what is an actual experience <laughs> what would that look like uh, specifically um do you if are there any stories that you could just like really tangibly you know just draw that out hmm. i think in particular of somebody uh who i've met um who is uh first started coming around our ministry mm-hmm. she was pretty young and she had uh, she had a girlfriend, and they had been dating for about a year at that point. And, and normally, you know, we say, you know, we say our, our ministry is for is is for folks that you know already kind of believe our our position on marriage, you know, mm-hmm. and that you know that men aren't supposed to date men, women aren't supposed to date women, you know. And but what with her. What we really got a sense of is that she was in a place of of wrestling and trying to understand. In her church, there was a lot of misunderstanding, right? Because here on her on her Facebook page, there's pictures of her with her girlfriend. And so, you know, they're kind of in panic mode. And and understandably, right? You know, because mm-hmm. it's you know, it, it it seems like, oh no, this is a problem. Uh, and and it and it's it's not not a necessarily a good thing. But as we start talking to her, we start realizing that like their relationship, there's nothing primarily sexual about it. In fact, she told us she's like, yeah, we're not having sex. She's like, I completely believe that like we I would never have sex until I was married. Anyhow, like regardless of what she believes about. Um, same-sex marriage, she's like, yeah, we're definitely not having sex. And so the more we started talking about it, I think that's where some of these assumptions that come in, presuppositions are, you know, like, oh, you have a girlfriend, therefore it is, this is a purely romantic relationship and you're being sexual with each other. And so this is a question of sexual sin. Then that's what we're going to treat it as if it's sexual sin. One, like, <laughs> like, uh, that's just one that's just an assumption that you don't know what they're doing. But even beyond that, even if they are just dating and you're treating it as sexual sin, that doesn't get it what's actually going on. And that's that they're not dating be- simply because they're hormonal teenagers that yeah. want to be sexual with somebody. It's they were this girl in particular was looking for friendship. She's always felt different. She's grown up uh, mm-hmm. in a church where all the other girls, you know, wanted to play inside, wanted to play with dolls, wanted to um, play house, you know, what, you know, whatever. And she always felt um, more like a boy. She felt like she wanted to play outside. She wanted to play sports. She never quite felt like she identified with the other girls and would always kind of feel on the outs because of that. Never really had close girlfriends, always just got along more with guys. And then here comes along this girl uh, who 
uh, they really enjoy each other. They really like each other. And there's this sense of intimacy that she experiences that she's never experienced with anyone before. And the sense of being seen and desired and wanted, like, I want to be just with you. Mm. And so that's not to say that in these kinds of situations, and even if we zoom back out, I'm not just talking about her specific experience, but in these cases of, of... of, of dating, you know, two guys, two girls. It's not to say that there's not ever a sexual component. Obviously, a lot of times there is. Uh, I think she's a rare example of somebody who is like very sure of her sexual ethics in terms of like, no, I don't not going to have sex until I'm married. Mm-hmm. But so it's not to say that there's never a component of that, but to always realize instead of if we only treat it as a sexual sin, then we miss what's actually really going on, which is this sense of like, I feel isolated. I feel different. This is somebody who sees me, who gets me, who understands me, who listens to me. And and I think if we actually really want to provide a narrative that's going to counteract that, if we really want the gospel to look better than that, mm-hmm. then at the very least, we have to demonstrate that we're willing to sit with people, to listen, to understand, to see, to know not just make assumptions about what's really going on. Otherwise, we're making that same-sex boyfriend, girlfriend a, a, a lot more attractive <laughs> than, the, yeah. the, you know, than the experience yeah. actually would be otherwise. So yeah, so I think that's, a, that's an example of when you understand the particular experiences of kids who grow up as same-sex attracted or grow up feeling gender conflict, you realize that actually a very little of it winds up being about sex, except or or at the very least winds up being more about sex than it is for any other kid. Yeah, uh, and I think that's often the mistake is assuming that somehow this the, the experiences and desires and feelings that same sex attracted kids are feeling are somehow more sexual, yeah, or more like inherently sinful. Yeah. than those feelings that other kids are wrestling with. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, um, sex, particularly with teenagers, is less about sex and more about feeling accepted. Right. No matter what you're attracted to. Right. That is just something that a teenager feels they're in control of, and this is their opportunity to uh, let them feel accepted in a physical way. So right. that uh, that is a struggle across the board with teenagers. Mm-hmm. We're not going to get into that. Well, maybe we could get into, you know, um, this is uh, love month for us. And so maybe that is something we talk about at a later time, um, maybe at our conference. What I am hearing, and I think this is so key, is we need to slow down. Stop making assumptions. Mm-hmm. And I again, I left your conference uh, really feeling like, yeah, if you're just doing good ministry across the board, this is easy. You know, um, it's no different. Mm-hmm. You really need to slow down, listen, mm-hmm. ask good questions, and be patient. Yes, and just show equal value to these kids. Mm-hmm. And it's hard because you don't have the same experience. You don't have the shared experience, so it's harder to enter into that. Mm-hmm. But I think um, as being an an adult navigating living or working with a teenager Mm -hmm. there is a sense of distance regardless Mm -hmm. if you want to love a teen really well no matter what their their attraction is Mm -hmm. slowing down and listening to them is is what is 
the most important. This is um, same sex attraction is is hard right now. One, because it's at the top of the culture. Mm-hmm. Two, the culture is speaking out very loudly about it. Yes. Um, and in a way that is contrasting to what the church church's response to it is. Mm-hmm. And so uh, one thing that really stuck out, and I don't know if this is yours, I, I don't know, uh, you may have gotten it from somewhere. You, you talk about the difference between orthodoxy and compassion. You mm-hmm. had like this visual of a railroad that on both sides, uh, for the train to go through, you have to have both sides of the railroad there. And yes. one side is orthodoxy and one side is compassion. Let, let's talk about that. What does that mean? Yeah, so <clears throat> I think for so long, I think for so long, Christians have been so focused on the one rail, mm-hmm. on orthodoxy. I think especially in our theological tradition, there's kind of the assumption that if we get the orthodoxy right, that, well, compassion is, I mean, the Bible talks about being compassionate, so therefore that's just kind of included in mm-hmm. orthodoxy, you know. And so so there's, there's kind of this sense of like, well, if we're being orthodox, then we are being compassionate or... Orthodoxy is compassion because if you don't give people the truth, then they could spend eternity without God. And how is that compassionate? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's just the sense of if we have to pick one, we're going to pick orthodoxy and we're going to hammer this home so that uh, and then just. Yeah, and then uh, y'all just figure out how to be compassionate. Just be nice. Like, don't yeah. be mean is yeah. basically what we think of when we think of compassion. Whereas really, I think when we talk about what we want for What's at the heart of compassion is empathy, and then you use that term, and and realizing that on one hand, yes, it is compassionate to give people the truth, but then come back and say it's not really compassionate to give people the truth in a way that they won't be able to hear it mm. or understand it. That's not going to connect with their experience and take their actual story into account, you know. And and this is biblical, right? You know, it's like if I, you know, if I speak in the tongues of angels, but have not love, I'm just a clinging symbol. You know, I mean, this is, this is not just, you know, a bunch of, you know, 21st century American Western culture mumbo jumbo. I mean, like Mm -hmm. this is the apostle Paul Mm -hmm. saying, you know, I can have my theology perfectly correct, but if I don't, if I don't have love, then it's worthless. And, and I think that's why we have to realize we have to have both. Because again, there's other sectors of our culture, but even other sectors of the church that have swung to the opposite side, you know, and said like, well, okay, we've had enough truth. Now we just need compassion. We just need to listen to people. We need to hear people. They need to speak their truth and we need to receive their truth. We need to make space for everybody um, to just kind of come be together. And again, that's where I'm like, well, that's not really compassionate if we're not actually talking about the truth. So again, we need these, we need both. We need both rails in order for the train to mm. move forward. And so in the in the conference that we did for youth pastors, where we kind of said is we spent a little bit of time talking about orthodoxy, saying like, this is what we believe. And in some ways that's even just to like <laughs> check the boxes, like make sure everyone knows like we're on the same page here as far yeah. as orthodoxy. Yeah. We believe this, we believe it's true, we believe it's good, we believe it's beautiful. But we haven't spent as much time talking about how to build empathy, how to understand what that experience is like, and thus understand how to communicate that orthodoxy in a way that it's going to be received yeah. and heard. Yeah. Because I think for a lot of people who experience same-sex attraction, when the gospel gets too wrapped up in visions of the married life, 
uh, family life, you know, having kids. Uh, when that when it gets too wrapped up in that, uh, it's very easy to to start thinking, well, maybe the gospel isn't for me. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's good news for other people, but that's not good news for me. Because if I'm if I don't see a way forward for actually getting married, I can't. I'm not going to marry the people that I'm actually attracted to, and I'm not going to marry somebody that I can't imagine actually having a real married life with. Yeah, that means I'm going to be single for the rest of my life. Then how is the gospel good news for me? Yeah, uh, if I don't actually see that being lived out, if I don't see single people in my church living healthy, flourishing lives of, of obedience and service to God. If I see single adults in the church, kind of, you know, people behind their backs kind of being like, gosh, we just need to get them married, you know, it's like, or what's wrong with them or or being talked about as if they're somehow more inherently selfish or, or less human because they're not married. When that's, when that's the environment that we've created, uh, it's going to be a lot harder for those students to actually hear the gospel as good news. Hmm for them. Well, you're completely affirming of our episode on singleness. Uh, So we we brought in Jenny Lynn and uh, she she talks in depth on, you know, what does it mean to be single, both affirming it, um, Mm -hmm. but also there is some sadness to Mm -hmm. it. And so Mm -hmm. um, I I really appreciate you bringing that up because that that is the the reality of, you know, identifying as same sex attracted and wanting to live um, a orthodox, faithful life in the church. Um, So you're committing to that. Mm -hmm. Just very briefly, how is that? You know, what are, what are some, some things that are are hard about that, but other Mm -hmm. things you, you touched on that a little bit, people looking in on you and, and saying, you know, why aren't you married? Um, But also there's some good things to, to, for single people in the church Mm -hmm. to do. So, yeah. Yeah. I would say, I think for me, the turning point was realizing that I didn't have to get married, you know, in order to, I mean, I always knew that there wasn't like a man, a scriptural mandate to get married, but there was always a sense growing up that I, I mean, really, if I was going to be faithful, if I was going to live a normal, healthy Christian life, I needed to be married. Mm -hmm. And so when that was my aim, even once I realized that I was <clears throat> exclusively same-sex attracted, my thought process was, okay, well, how can I make marriage work then? I can't marry a man. Not going to. That's not God's will. It's not God's best. So if I'm going to get married, it has to be to a woman. I don't, I'm not really attracted to women. I mean, like, I enjoy them. I like, I like being friends with them. I like hanging out with them, but, like, but not in, in, in that same way. And so how can I make a marriage to a woman work? But then when I started realizing, like, wait a second, like, I don't, that's not necessary. Mm-hmm. Then it started opening the door to seeing, like, all the opportunities that existed for singleness. When I actually realized I could stop focusing on that marriage wasn't actually something I wanted then in terms of, like, the marriage that's available to me. And so I was like, so, okay, now I actually have a lot of time. To, you know, as a single person, uh, a lot more free time uh, to deal with and try to figure out than people who are married. I wind up having, I'll 
<laughs> probably wind up having more resources in some ways, at least available resources. If I don't have kids, yeah. you know, there's going to be, I, I don't, I'm not committed wholly to one person. And therefore that allows me to really kind of like pour in very intentionally into the lives of a number of people. <clears throat> so I just realized that there's a lot of ways that I'm able to serve the church, serve other people, serve married people, and and be involved in their lives, be involved in helping create and foster community and friendships. Uh, I can't tell you how many of my friends in seminary uh, that were married would thank me and like my or there are other friends that were were gay and, and single there at the seminary who were like they're like thank you for like reaching out to us and like asking us out to coffee and like hanging out with us and asking us how we're doing and like planning events and get-togethers where we all come together and they're like which is like people I've had guys say like guys just have never really pursued me like that before in friendship and like you've kind of created this framework around which we've all been able to come together and find stronger community as mm -hmm. men at the seminary with one another because of kind of like the way that you're serving as a catalyst for building this like male community mm -hmm. so yeah I've just been able to see those opportunities that exist as a, a, a single in the church yeah, their singleness um, is kind of put on the, the outskirts of the Christian faith, but um, it's scripturally based and mm -hmm. and of Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, there are several uh, single people in scripture who were huge advocates um, and huge roles in the kingdom of God. And so I, I want to shift a little bit yeah. in, uh, in the sense of like, let, let's get a little bit practical. Mm -hmm. We have basically three different scenarios that we're dealing with, especially, you know, if you're a parent of a teen or you're a teenager, well, how are you going to experience a person that is same-sex attracted mm -hmm. uh, or somebody that comes out? Mm -hmm. uh, there are basically if... You are a parent. You have the experience of your your kid coming home and saying, "Hey, one of my closest friends uh, has come out mm -hmm. as gay or lesbian," and you have at that opportunity to respond as a parent. Mm -hmm. The other scenario is, "Hey, um, kid comes home saying, hey, I heard for the first time.'" You know, somebody I'm acquainted with, nobody I'm really close with mm -hmm. has come out. Mm -hmm. um, same same type of thing, but not quite as close. Mm -hmm. The other third scenario, which is going to be the, the kicker, the hard one, is mm -hmm. the kid comes home and says, hey, I think I'm same-sex attracted. Yeah. Well, and well, honestly, the words they're going to use nowadays is they're going to say, I'm, I'm gay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. So yeah. that's good. That's good. Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to say gay and... And, and in that scenario, it's it's good to respond. You use um, term mirroring. I, mm -hmm. I remember hearing that. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, let's start with that. You know, you, kid comes home and one of those three things has happened. Mm -hmm. How do you respond? What is what is term mirroring and how does it help in the process? Right. So term mirroring is is a uh, is what we we use to kind of describe. Our approach in first light, mm -hmm. which is the fact that we are not going to make language and terminology a litmus test or, you know, a lock on the front door to our community. 
There's a lot of different beliefs out there about what language is good and helpful um, to describe this as Christians. This, this experience, like, can Christians say that they're gay or lesbian? Uh, can Christians say that they're queer? Can Christians say that they're, uh, or should Christians say that they're same-sex attracted or that they experience same-sex attraction or struggle with same-sex attraction? And there's a lot of debate out there about that. I think what's important is to realize that all the language that can be used has its own baggage, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you choose to say, like, I'm gay, if I were to say I'm gay, then there's going to be people who are going to hear that and are going to hear me saying I'm gay and I am going to date and marry a man and I don't think there's anything wrong with that and this is a core part of my identity and you can't tell me anything differently. People are going to hear me say that just by saying that one word, and I have to explain to them, well, well, no, like, like that's just describing the fact that I'm primarily attracted to men. I'm just using a word that's common in our culture that that's actually going to be understood by people, but that says nothing about my choices, my beliefs, my convictions. It doesn't mean that it's a core part of my identity. It's just an adjective to describe one part of my experience. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, if I were to say, well, I'm same-sex attracted, then, you know, on one hand, we Christians might think, oh, well, that's safer, right? Because, like, that's not, it doesn't carry all the same cultural connotations. It's just more descriptive, you know? So, like, that's, that's a safer thing to say, right? It's like, well, I mean, maybe in some situations. It's certainly safer if you are same-sex attracted to say that when you're in a church because you yeah. don't get attacked as often. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if you're out in the culture, uh, if you're talking to people and you see them same-sex attracted, that's going to trigger a lot of things for other people who have had experience with ex-gay ministries, mm-hmm. many of whom, you know, have been have been proven even by Christians to be to be just false and not actually delivering what they were promising uh, and actually causing a great deal of harm and trauma in people's lives. Uh, and a lot of those ministries heavily advocated use of the term same-sex attracted. And because it's often mandated on people to use that terminology in Christian settings, those words carry baggage of of Christians being unloving, uncompassionate, you know, kind of forcing their narrative on people. Mm-hmm. So in other situations, if I go into the, the restaurant that I worked at for a couple of years and tell my coworkers, well, I'm same-sex attracted, what they're going to hear me saying is like, I'm actually gay, but I can't say that because I'm a Christian and like, yeah, and I have to use yeah. other words to describe my experience or else I'm going to be attacked, you know? And so they're hearing me be basically like a cry for help, like help. So we have to be aware that whatever language we use, there's going to be potential baggage that comes with it. So as first light, when we talk about term mirroring, we say like, let's let people use the language to describe their experience that makes sense to them. Hmm. Some people have very good reasons for wanting to say same-sex attract instead of gay. Other people have very good reasons for preferring to say gay instead of same-sex attracted or other terms. Let's stop and listen to them, understand what they mean when they say those words, why they're using those words, what they're act- what's actually going on in their heart when they say those words. And in the meantime, let's show them respect and Christian hospitality by using the words to describe them that they use to describe themselves. Mm. You know, in the same way that if somebody whose official name on their birth certificate is Nicholas and they've been going by Nicholas and then when they get to high school, they say, actually, I want to start going by, <coughs> by, by Nick, you know? And it's like, 
okay, like we've been calling you Nicholas for so long, but you want to be called Nick. Okay. You know, we're not going to say, no, your name is Nicholas. That's on your birth certificate. You know, yeah. it's like, there's yeah. not a K in your name, but now you're adding a K to your name. Where's that K coming from? You uh-huh. know, it's like, we're not like in the same way that we, we show hospitality to people and saying, we're going to call you what you want to be called. Yeah. I think that's a way to invite people in to actually get into the deeper conversations and feel welcome and safe rather than shutting that door right from the get-go. So it's not us saying, we think this term is good. We think this is the best words that you could use to describe yourself. It's not us saying that like, oh yeah, there's nothing wrong with this language, no problematic aspects to it whatsoever. It's us saying, this is what you're calling yourself and out of respect and hospitality, that's what we're, that's what we'll call you too. Yeah. Um, and it's I kind th- of following the, the compassion rail. Exactly. You know? It allows, it allows the, the conversation to remain open. And there might be a time then further down the road, once you've built trust to say like, so why do you use that word? Why do you feel like it's important to call yourself queer? You know, and say like, you know, when I hear the word queer, this is what I think, or this is what comes to my mind, but it seems like that's different for you. So why is that important to you? And that invites people into conversation that invites people to (laughs) share and feel safe to share. And then maybe even come to the conclusion, oh, maybe I don't like that language or maybe I still do, but I need to be more cautious with it instead of condemning it right from the get-go, in which case you just get defensive mm. and say, like, yeah. you know, like, you aren't listening to me. You don't understand why I'm using this. You just aren't, aren't comfortable with it. So I think that's really what we're, we're calling people to. So, yeah, in this case, when, you know, a student comes home and tells the parent, you know, I think I'm gay, or, I, or honestly, I mean, with all the different possibilities out there now, it's like, it's, it's, more likely you're going to say, I think I'm, I'm gender nonconforming. I'm gender queer. I'm gender fluid. I'm bisexual, pansexual, demisexual. I mean, the, the, the terminologies now that out there are are endless. Um, again, which is why this understanding and figuring out and trying to learn some of what's, what's going on is, is so important. I think it's, obviously that's going to instill a lot of panic, right? There's going to be a lot of anxiety Mm -hmm. that's generated uh, and apparent from that. I can't see it from the perspective of a parent, but I even just know that when I've had friends come and tell me things, even as somebody who's experienced the same sex attraction myself, sometimes certain words just strike anxiety in my heart because of all the connotations that that word carries for me from what I've seen in media, from what I've seen from other people who use that term. And I think instead of responding from a place of anxiety and fear, it has to come back to tell me more. (laughs) Tell me more. What do you mean when you say that? Like, explain to me. Like, why do you think that? Explain to me why. But, of course, (laughs) not doing so in a demanding way, you know, but like inviting, inviting more to be shared, you know, or when. So in. The experience of a kid coming home and and saying that they're gay or the experience that um, more more frequently will probably happen as they will come home and say, hey, my friend came out as gay. Right. Um, or I heard of so-and-so coming out as gay. Mm-hmm. How, do, how does a, a parent respond to that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I think you're right. Like that's... That's what they're going to come home and say is my friend is is gay because or my friend came out as gay because that's the other important thing to note is that like 
kids aren't using the term same sex attracted. No, you know? and no, so like, no. that's largely that is a term of anxiety used by by Christians in order to kind of try to make sure that we're hanging on to the narrative. But like that's not terminology that kids understand or know. Mm-hmm. And so even if they've heard it said in church. It's going to be. I would be very surprised to hear a high schooler come home and say, "I think my friend is same sex attracted." That just means they're listening really, really well at church. But anyhow, so yeah, if they come home and say, "I mean, my friend is gay," um, again, I think the best the best response has to be. And again, I realize this is very bold of me to start saying what what parents should do or shouldn't do. I mean, but just speaking from the perspective of of somebody who's kind of you know been on the flip side of this. Yeah. Yeah. Ask questions. Ask, oh, what do you think about that? You know, I think especially if this is a f- somebody that your child sees as a friend and cares a lot about, well, I think what they need to see from you is that you care a lot about this friend too. Mm-hmm. Even if there's somebody that you don't really like or you think isn't a great, ex- you know, like your child needs to see that that you actually care about this person and want what's best for them and that you're not now immediately more suspicious of them or see them as a threat because then you're putting your child in the place of having to choose between you and the faith that you represent yeah, and your friend and the philosophy or teaching that your friend may represent, that the friend may represent. So you have to demonstrate in that moment, even in the midst of all the anxiety and fear and like, Oh no, what's happening to be able to say like, I really care about your friend too. And how's your friend doing? Like, how did people respond when they came out? Yeah. Like, were, were people, were, did people listen? Were people kind? Were people hurtful? How did you respond? You know, like, what did you say? You know, and I, I think in these cases, we have to be figuring out how do we not just make sure that our kids understand orthodoxy, but that our kids understand compassion as well. Mm. You know, I think especially if they're in a, uh, a, if we're talking about a Christian school, you know, where uh, there might not be like kind of prevailing attitude of acceptance towards the LGBT community. You know, so if a student at a a local Christian school comes out as gay, you know, where there's probably a little bit higher chance of them facing pushback or challenge from their fellow students or from teachers or people asking your kids like, you know, are you, are you, how are you going to stick up for them? Like if they're getting bullied, if they're getting pushed, you know, if the people are treating them unkindly, mm-hmm. treating them in a way that Jesus would not treat them, are you going to stand up for them? You know, if you hear people making jokes about them behind their back, are you going to say like, no, you shouldn't do that. And I think we get that when, you know, if, if we hear that, if we hear that, uh, Kids are making fun of somebody in the class who has a physical disability or who's a different race or, a di- or speaks a different language. You know, like we want our kids to, be, to say like, no, stand up against that and say like, you don't say that about them. That's unkind. That's not what Jesus would do. Mm. And I think we, you know, we have to be concerned of like, are our kids also going to stand up for and stand up against bullying of people who are, are gay or who are, would say that they're transgender, you know, and I think we have to be just as concerned about the compassion as well as the orthodoxy. And what that communicates to our child then is not that my faith is opposed to my friend. I don't have to choose between my faith and my friend, but that my faith, while yes, it does hold to orthodoxy and orthodox beliefs, like my faith also very much 
cares about the well-being of my friend, mm. wants my friend to be safe, wants my friend to be cared for and loved, even if my friend doesn't agree with yeah. us. Yeah. You know, even if our, my friend rejects my faith, my faith still doesn't want him to be bullied, still wants him to be loved and cared for and safe and wants to be a safe place for that friend to come, even if they don't agree. And I think nowadays that is going to communicate to our children the fact that like... <laughs> Not just that Christianity is true, but the Christianity is good and the Christianity mm. is beautiful and compelling. And so, yeah, I think that's more so, you know, yeah, you got to make sure at some point that you're, you know, like, what, what do you believe about this? You know, do you actually, you know, what, making sure your, your kids kind of understand what the church does believe. But in that moment, like hitting the compassion element first, I think is going to be so key towards helping your, your mm. student really see that there's not, it, it doesn't, it's not a contradiction <laughs> to mm. hold on to their faith and love their friend really well. Yeah. yeah it's, it's kind of funny as you're ta- talking about all this, uh, for some reason, my mind goes towards my lifeguard training, uh, mm. where you do extensive first aid preparation. And mm-hmm. So I, I remember, you know, going to the training and, the first thing you do is not address the problem. The first thing you do is assess the situation. Mm. You, you look at the scene, yeah. make sure, uh, are there any other variables at play? And then you go to the person who is you know hurt or, or whatever, uh, and then you ask them a question. Are you okay? Are you okay? You put mm. your hand on their shoulder. You physically do that. And you say, mm-hmm. are you okay? Are you okay? Uh, and then you go into action. Mm-hmm. But the first step is, you know, okay, let's back up, let's yeah. pause, then ask a question: Are you okay? Mm-hmm. And then you address the problem. So, and and if we're to correlate this, you know, orthodoxy comes after the fact, um, after the fact of compassion, mm-hmm. um, and we want to jump to um, the solution before, you know, addressing the problem. Yeah. And uh, because we want immediate things, uh, we're kind of wired that way, especially mm-hmm. as Americans. We, we want what we want, we go and we get it, and mm-hmm. um, we don't want to wait for, for anything. And so that, that's a little bit of the piece to it, but it's a much larger thing that um, what I'm hearing is slow down. Again, um, we've, we've addressed this several times. Slow down, mm-hmm. ask questions, be empathetic. Um, be compassionate, um, really just listen really, really well. Um, and then, you know, when the opportunity, uh, is there, uh, address the orthodoxy, um, that time will come. You as a representative of the faith are living out that orthodoxy mm-hmm. by the way that you are compassionate, um, to that person. Yes. And that is powerful stuff. And because, it's not a one and done thing. Mm-hmm. And, and this is exactly what our, our conference is going to be about. But talking with your teen is not a one and done thing. It right. is an ongoing life experience. Mm-hmm. You're always entering into the conversation. Mm-hmm. You're always entering into their life, no matter what the problem is or, or, or whatever uh, point of discussion is. Stephen, you've been great. Um, this has been fantastic. One thing I do want to ask you is, 
Are there any resources you could point parents to either, you know, straight into scripture, where's a good place to read or just some general resources that they can purchase books, podcasts, videos, whatever. Do you have anything kind of in your library that you, you tend to pull from? Yeah. So for the, the top resource that we recommend through First Light for parents and family members of LGBT individuals, and again, by LGBT, maybe people who are experienced same-sex attraction, whatever language they use. There's a book called Guiding Families, mm-hmm. and it is written by uh, Bill Henson, put out by uh, Lead Them Home Ministries, which again is a ministry that believes and affirms the traditional biblical sexual ethic. And I think they do really good work. Um, I think it's I think it's primarily helpful for family members uh, and parents of kids who are themselves uh, not straight. But I think there's really helpful information in there as well um, for adults who have any kind of interaction with youth as far as or know people that aren't straight uh, mm. or that are that are gay, same sex attracted. It gives help provides really helpful categories. I think one of the, my favorite things about it is that there's an educational component of trying to help adults understand what all of these terms mean, like what's going on in the mind and culture of youth as it relates to gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. And then how do we speak into that well? And how do we not react with anxiety, but react with, okay, I think I see what's happening here. So that is uh, that's my top uh, recommendation. Uh, there's another book that we highly recommend. Uh, it's actually, it's written for youth pastors. Mm-hmm. I think it is just as helpful for parents. Uh, and so we highly recommend it for parents as well. It's called Understanding Sexual Identity uh, by Mark Yarhouse. Yeah. Mark is one of the uh, foremost uh, Christian psychologists uh, dealing with understanding gender and sexuality. He's coming from a traditional biblical perspective. And he like kind of gets in and really gives really helpful information for understanding like how to walk with a youth through this process of thinking like realizing I think I'm different I think I'm experiencing same-sex attraction I'm gay whatever and how to how to move forward mm-hmm. in that for those who may not be right there in the trenches dealing with this with their own kids uh, or with like their kids best friends but who are just wanting to learn and understand more about kind of even just what we're talking about you might the their categories might be getting blown right now. Like, wait, 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 like Christian gay, you know, like, wait, you know, celibate, like, what is it? What does this all mean? Uh, I think the, a great place to start is Wesley Hill's book, Washed and Waiting. Okay. Wes is a gay celibate man, uh, you know, conservative Christian in terms of like what he believes about scripture and Washed and Waiting is kind of his story of coming to terms with that and mm-hmm. how he kind of got to where he is now. Yeah beautifully written, very compelling story, very faithful to scripture. And I think that's a great place to start for people just kind of wanting to understand some more about what this experience looks like. Awesome. Well, thank yeah. you. We'll, we will have copies of all those at our, our conference and great. make sure people can look through them before they go and purchase them if they so desire. Yeah. Again, Stephen, you've been great. Absolutely. Those that are listening, we hope to see you March 6th at our Hawks and Hornets conference where we will continue the conversation. 